Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. We are going to be in Hebrews 3 today, picking up where we left off. If you're having trouble finding it, it's right after Hebrews 2. Verse 1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest our confession, Christ Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him as Moses was also faithful in all his house. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. Jesus um, is the topic of Hebrews as they are dealing with a church filled with Jewish converts. So when the church first got started, most of the Christians were Jews that converted, and they're struggling. And it comes up at this, you know, Hebrews is, I think, again, written pretty early, but they're struggling because they're parting from a synagogue system that goes back 1,500 years, 2,000 years. Their families have been going to the same synagogue for 10 generations. So when you start saying, I'm not coming to synagogue anymore, that creates some conflicts, some deep conflicts. And in fact, the Jews had elevated Moses up to the highest pedestal. He's the greatest of the prophets. He's the one we're following after. He's the mediator for the Jewish people. So when Christ comes along and says, I'm the mediator, that creates some ripple effects through the church. And Hebrews is addressing those people. And again, I, how does this apply for today? Christianity often calls us into fellowship with believers. And that fellowship with believers can pull us away from families. And that can be a strain on the family. And all you want to do is get them to come with you. Um, but that gets to be something where Hebrews is a book to encourage people in this sense of the Christ that you're following is the Christ and is the Messiah, and it's worth it. It's worth the trade-off. And this comparison between Moses and Jesus is where we kind of pick up in chapter 3. Um, chapter 1 dealt with the authority of Christ as higher than the angels. Chapter 2 dealt with the humility of Christ being lower than the angels but a mediator or fully human for the humanity. And now it kind of turns the, the, the topic onto this, okay, who do you follow, Christ or Moses? And which one do you do? And I think we can look at Moses as really any traditions that the world has offered us before we came into an active faith with Christ, before we started following the Lord. We had other traditions and other habits and other things that we like to do with our time. So the Mosaic priesthood gets totally abandoned by Jesus. Matthew 23 is a good reread if you want to come into that point where he does the woes and he actually finds the priesthood in sin. They're wanting. And he basically passes judgment on the entire priesthood and on the temple itself and repudiates all of them. Matthew 23, 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kills the prophets and stones them which are sent to you, how often would I have gathered the children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, but you wouldn't. 
Behold, your house is left desolate. For I say to you, you shall not see me henceforth till I shall say, blessed, till, till you shall say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. His disciples follow him away from the temple, but all these new Jew converts, they're struggling with leaving the temple. This is a tradition for a long time. So when the next feast comes along and they're not showing up to the feast, they have a lot of pressure to not meet, not get together with other Christians. Then the persecution starts coming. The Romans start to persecute Christians. The pressure gets even more or even higher. Like, why am I doing all this? Why am I sacrificing so much to follow this king, to follow this resurrected Christ? And that's where Hebrews is going to really nail down that point. Um, you'll notice there's not many verses in this chapter, but we're going to do just the one chapter today. There's so much to unpack here. So we're going to systematically, word by word, go through this and kind of unpack what it is. So we ended the book of Matthew with Jesus having all authority and then we pick that up again in Hebrews. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. The, Hebrews starts here saying, therefore. <laughs> this is the funny part. This is why I maybe don't think this is Paul writing this, is the therefore is referring to two chapters worth of content, right? These are long thoughts that are being drawn out in Hebrews. So it's a, a topic that's being developed from here all the way into chapter 5, and then chapter 8 says, therefore, I in summary, <laughs> right? And then chapter 8 goes three more chapters to just summarize the first five chapters, right? This is a, the writer's explaining a larger theme, and that theme is Jesus is our, is our leader. Jesus is perfect. He's not an angel. He's, he's not, he's, he's both fully human, but more than human, and he's more than any of the prophets before him. He says, holy brethren, this addresses the reader. This is the first time the reader has been addressed in two chapters. So usually Paul introduces, says hi to the reader in the first few lines. But in here we have it kind of almost mid-book. Um, we are the audience in this because the brethren are those who partake in the heavenly calling. To partake of something is to engage with it, to be following it. If you're here to hear the word of God on a Sunday morning, you're partaking in the, in the heavenly calling. This is what we're called to do. So that idea that the audience gets addressed, the title then established here is, at, is that Jesus is, well, Hebrews 2.11, we're not ashamed to call them brethren. So the fact that Jesus doesn't call us brothers means that in chapter 3, verse 1, the writer starts to use the term brethren or brothers. And today we call each other brothers and sisters because we see that modeled in the epistles. It's not a small title to call somebody a brother or brethren. Brethren would be kind of like the gender-neutral version of that, right? Uh, you know, treat that how you want. Um, but holy is to be is is an even larger title that they throw in there to say holy brethren is to call us separated, which is separated from the world, separated from flesh. And I think the writer is specifically thinking about separated from the synagogue system, separated from Judaism. You're holy and set aside. You have been called to something greater, consecrated to God. That said, it's not our holiness that we have, but the holiness imputed to us by the Jesus that was talked about in chapters 1 or 2. Because the therefore is there. Because of Jesus, we are holy brethren. And we come together in that sense. We're partakers in a heavenly calling. Um, notice that all of this is in the plural. Like he's talking to a group of people here. And, and this group of people has something to do. The history of the church has been one of churches rising 
and doing wonderful things for the Lord, and then they stagnate and they fall away. That's the history of the church. And I think what's happening is that early wash of Christians is starting to get into the grind of life, that you got to do this till the end. And it gets to be something where the writers are really trying to encourage them not to, dra- not to drift away, not to fade away like that. And I think churches always need to be present of that. If we're not partaking in the heavenly calling, then something could fall apart. And the plurality here is he's talking to groups of people. That's going to be really important when we get to chapters 5 and 6 because people start questioning individual salvation. And Hebrews is really talking to churches of people, groups of people that need to be partaking in the Christian faith. So think of it this way. (laughs) Um, It says to consider. And I like this because we do this, I think, very well. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. If we're to consider Jesus, it's okay to slow down and take some time to think about exactly who Jesus is and to dwell on it. It's the difference between the birds and the bees, which you didn't know we'd be talking about today. But like birds, like hummingbirds, they'll flit and flash and they just bounce from flower to flower to flower. And they feed themselves that way, kind of, and they need to do a lot of it and they burn a ton of energy doing it. Considering is more like bees where you land on the flower, you dig deep, you get all the pollen you can off that flower, and then you actually bring it back to the hive so that you can build something with it. And when when the writer asks us to consider Jesus, I think that's how we study. We sit on something, we think about it, and then we use that to feed our lives and build the church. And we do it together as a group in the plural. Consider the apostle and high priest. Both of those titles essentially are ambassadors or mediators. They are the ones that stand in between. Jesus is standing in between us and God. We stand between Jesus and the world. And we're supposed to be ambassadors and mediators too. Um, So we look at this as kind of a, you know, when we consider Jesus, we're considering to some extent what we should be emulating or what we should be more like. So we're invested in this looking at Jesus today, right? And we get everything we can scope here. Notice that there is two titles, apostle and high priest, but there's only one article of that title, Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus can have more than one title and more than one name. So again, a principle, if you want to get into the Trinity, God can actually have more than one title, but still be the same being. So here we have the exact same thing. So the high priest stands between us and God when it comes to our sin. And an apostle or a messenger would stand between us and God when it comes to what we need to hear from God. So high priests accept our gift to God and mediators are God's message or God's gift to us. And Jesus does both, both of those things, building a kind of bridge between humanity and God. Another, the directive here is to consider it and think about it. And then you get to this word confession. This is not a Catholic confession, like you go into a confessional and you say all your sins. And, but apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, the confession here is in the Greek to fix our mind on something. Jesus is our confession. He's our fixation. And it's a very strong verb in the Greek. It's completely an emphasis. We're devoted to Jesus Christ. And we're not devoted to a particular teacher. We're not even devoted to each other as a fellowship in the same way that we're devoted to Jesus Christ with our heart, mind, and soul. We give everything to Jesus. So this is basically like 
We see that this is what God says throughout the Bible. When we confess something, we're telling other people about Jesus Christ. It's what we say with our mouth. Matthew 10, 32. Whoever therefore shall confess me before men, him I also will confess before my Father which is in heaven. Same idea, same word. So the confess there isn't, has really nothing to do with our sin. It has to do with our belief in Jesus Christ. He's our confession to others. And then you get Christ Jesus. The word Christ is anointed. He's the king. So he's our mediator. He's our high priest. And when you put the word Christ in front of Jesus, you're also calling him our king, King Jesus, the anointed one. So you see that that idea of apostle, high priest, and king are all mixed together in Hebrews. And it explains the new covenant. We have a covenant with this new king. And the question of this chapter is, how does that covenant compare to the covenant of Moses, our old life, that old faith we used to follow? The writer then compares Jesus to Moses and starts to build that out, considering the synagogue and what's the, the, there it is. And again, I don't think we can underestimate the, the pressure on Jews when they stop going to synagogue. The amount of family pressure, you got grandma calling, you got a Jewish grandma calling you up saying, where have you been? I haven't seen you in synagogue. For... And, and that's the kind of pressure that starts to build. Well, what do you say to her? You love her. You care about her. These are nice people. But your confession is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ walked away from that system because of its sin, because of the, the brokenness of the priesthood. And he created a new priesthood with other people. So verse 2, our consideration, of our, our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. See how they're conditioning this? Like they're not trying to offend Jewish people. They're saying Moses was faithful in all his house, but Jesus, the anointed Christ Jesus, was faithful to him who appointed him. And him who appointed him would be him. So he's self-appointed. So both are faithful mediators to God. And verse 2 is an important thing here because he's not trying to diminish Moses one bit. Moses was amazing and did his job faithfully and after Moses you have 2,000 years of Jewish tradition and culture which changed the world like prior to Judaism the world was a barbaric ugly place but as Judaism rose so did civility so did restrained warfare so did court systems so did medical systems all of those things grew because God ordained them in the law and you start to see the world changing from this wild untamed place to a place that's strongly influenced by Israel as it rose up through the nations. Even as they go to Babylon in, in shackles, Babylon becomes civilized. Like wherever the Jews go, they bless the people they stay with. And it just keeps happening. My servant Moses, this, the quotation here, and again in Hebrews they're pretty much always quoting the Old Testament. The quotation of verse 2 is from Numbers 12, 7. In context, um, God is, is claiming Moses was faithful in all my house. So there, it's important there that that gets changed in verse 2 slightly. They say Moses was faithful in all his house. The capital H there, the his is not about Moses. It's Moses was faithful in God's house. So Jesus, God himself, was faithful in God's house. And Moses was also faithful in God's house. And this is important as we go into verse 3. So... In Numbers 12, 7, God is speaking and he says, Moses was faithful in all my house. It wasn't Moses' house to start with. Whatever religious traditions we come out of, that wasn't belonging to that tradition. That tradition belonged to God at the beginning. 
God started that. So, and I think that's really true of a lot of the Protestant religions. Even the Catholic Church, I think, was established under God's will and sovereignty. And so as we see the Lutherans grow up, I think Martin Luther was inspired. He wasn't perfect, but he was inspired. I think John Wesley was inspired. I think we see these leaders of the church that go back to the word of God and truthfully teach it in its entirety, and they start new movements. And it's when the old movement has gotten stagnant and stopped doing its job influencing the culture. So we see this happening again. He's not trying to diminish Moses. He's saying Moses did his job. That was 2,000 years ago. Moses was confirmed by God in a number of ways. Exodus 23, he's shown like the sun. In Numbers 12, the leprosy from Miriam's rebellion got healed in a second, having God affirm Moses was in charge. And then in Korah's rebellion, the same thing happened in Numbers 16. All they got all swallowed by an earthquake, right? That all gets flipped with Jesus. Jesus was also radiant, Matthew 17. He also cured leprosy, Matthew 8. By the way, and, and in addition to that, he cleared the multitudes of the lame, the blind, the dumb, the maimed, many others, and they all cast down at Jesus' feet. He healed all of them, uh, Matthew 15. And where Korah was swallowed up by an earthquake, Matthew 27, 51, the earth shook and people rose up out of the ground with Jesus. Different direction, right? And so... Both of them have been confirmed by God through signs, miracles, wonders, and unquestionably, God was with both Moses and Jesus. Then you get to verse 3. For this one has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, insomuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. So to be worthy of more glory than Moses is quite a claim. This is where you'd get in trouble with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. On the other hand, the point here being made is they all saw and witnessed that Jesus was confirmed by God too. The most significant confirmation of God is that Jesus didn't stay in hell. <laughs> Neither did his flesh see corruption. The Jesus was raised up whereof we are all witnesses, Acts 2.31. We all saw it. Jesus rose from the dead. Moses didn't rise from the dead. He's still in the grave. So he who built the house here has more honor than the house. The two words for house in the English are actually two totally different Greek words. I love when I find this stuff. They're not the same word. The first house is a habitation or a building you stay in. So a place people live, a physical building. The house for the Greek is actually a pronoun, he. It's not the word house. So this is a really interesting kind of sentence. So the, the, he who built the habitation has more honor than he. And it's, it's interesting, he's trying to really say the person who builds the house is a contractor. The person who owns the house has more value or price. In fact, the word honor there is actually the Greek word for value or price, right? So just being a contractor and helping to build something doesn't make me the owner of it. And it doesn't mean that I have as much net worth as the person who's constructing the building and paying me as a contractor. Moses was a servant is what that sentence is saying, right? And the one who hired Moses has more price or value than he does. And then you get to verse 4. Both Moses and Jesus establish a house, right? They both have a family habitation. Moses founds a house for the Israel family. Jesus has a house called the church family. And this Hebrews is really trying to unpack this. What does this mean? 
right? And you can't be a member of two households. It doesn't work like that. You're under somebody's roof when you go to sleep at night. And he's really, again, he's speaking to these Jews that are going back to synagogue and going back to that system, and that's the system they ran away from. It's the same system that had them in shackles, but they're going back to it because it's familiar. And humans are like this. We like the familiar. The risky stuff gives us tummy troubles. So for every house is built by somebody, verse 4, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant, as a contractor, for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. Like we speak well of Moses because he did his job. He was faithful. But Christ, verse 6, as son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast, the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. He who built all things is God, and Jesus is God. Make no mistake about the theology of the writer of Hebrews, or writers of Hebrews. In the beginning was God, and he created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1 is the premise of the Bible. The writer of Hebrews is going back to that idea, God built all things, verse 4. All things were built by God. Don't think that what Moses built was anything less than God's work on earth. Israel is that valuable. And you have to say that or you're never going to bring a Jewish person over because they do believe Israel is special and unique. And as Christians, we should believe that too because Hebrews makes that claim also. There's something special about that nation. And then in verse 5 it says, as a servant for a testimony. Moses being the servant, Jesus is the son, he's the heir of the house. Right? So it's all his, and it belongs to him. But Christ as son over his own house. Any glory we give to Moses has to also be given to God. So when God shows up incarnate and builds another house, we don't diminish Moses. We simply add to the glory we give to God. God's doing a new thing. But Christ as son over his own house, Jesus essentially built both houses. He used a contractor for the first one, and he came for, on his own for the second one. Moses is never called the son, and neither were angels. We saw that in chapter 1. Moses is, is, is never treated as the heir of the throne, but we saw that in chapter 1. But we see this Christ coming as human, being at the same level physically as Moses, but spiritually so much greater as the son of God. And it says whose house we are. And this introduces the second house, the house of Christ. And that's the one that we're in. So don't go back to that life that you got away from. Don't fall back into that trap. Don't drift back into that, chapter 2. On another note, as we're talking to people that have joined the family of Christ, we're addressing that temptation to go back to our old life. We're in a new house now with a new family. It's a clean break from the Mosaic system. But for us, as we get saved, it's a clean break from our old lives. And we're a new creation when we do that. So if we hold, and then there's an if. Okay, this is the scariest part about chapter 3. We're going to see the word if a lot. A lot. And Hebrews brings up the question all the time, can I lose my salvation? When you see the word if, you're going to get saved if you are doing these things and those things. That, be, that is, makes this, a, I warned you last week to put on your big boy pants, big girl pants, because this week we're really getting into the if. If you hold fast to the end, the confidence and rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. If we don't drift, chapter 2, verse 1, take heed to Jesus' word or you'll drift away. So you have to be faithful. So 
if the, Moses created 1,500 years of faithfulness in the Jewish people, then how much more has Jesus created 2,000 years of faithfulness amongst the Christian people? We're supposed to keep the faith regardless of if it's in our lifetime or not. We keep it all the way to the end. And I think the end in, this, in, in verse 6 is the end of our era. It's not the end of our lives. It's the end of this entire era of when it comes to when Jesus returns. So this is the first time, not the first time, we see salvation presented as a lifetime commitment. Jesus consistently pre presented salvation as a lifetime commitment. So if we say a series of words and then we live just like we always lived, have we actually made a lifetime commitment or have we just spoken words of, out of our mouth? It's a difference and it's a significant difference. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6. That thing that started with the prayer needs to have a lifetime commitment after it. The church is the work of God and our work is in that church. In other words, we're at the same level as Moses. We're contractors working on building a house. And I don't mean a physical building. I know we talk about physical buildings a lot because we're in a living room right now. But it's not about the building. The church is, is made up of us. The houses of the synagogue is an image of the old lives, the old status, but we are in a new house of which Jesus is the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2, 4. You also as lively stones are built up on a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This is our purpose in life. It's so fun to talk to 20-year-olds and say, what am, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. What's my purpose? Your purpose is to help build up the church. That's a, that's a purpose. You may not like it. You may choose other purposes that are for yourself, but that's the purpose God's given. You're a brick, right? That's not exactly building self-esteem. You're a stone. You belong in the building. If the building is standing one day and one of the bricks just takes off, that hurts the structure of the building. It hurts the, 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 the solidness of it, but the foundation hasn't changed. We have a new covenant in the church, and it's simply God's newest house, which is going to go out to the whole world. Israel is supposed to bless the world. We're supposed to go out into the world and make more bricks, right? Just like the Egyptians made bricks. That's what we're supposed to do. So we hold fast to it. The word there in the Greek implies a grip or something, a grip that's sustained over time, right? It's trying to cling to something with all you have. And the longer you go, the harder it is to grab onto something because you get sore. The initial thrill of salvation becomes a long-term grind in the Christian faith. And we get tests along the way. So we have our confidence. This is a great word in this chapter. In the Greek, it's parousia. It means a boldness in speaking, not just to be a confident human being, to be able to speak frankly and freely and openly and not worry about what you're saying. So it's a very particular Greek word that people can speak without being too nervous. Right? They always show up on Sundays. So that word confidence, parousia, here's the interesting thing. We talked about authorship before. Confidence is a word that shows up nine times in the Gospel of John and only once in the other three Gospels combined. It's a very John word because it's a very particular Greek word, parousia. And, John, and then he uses it another four times in his epistles. It's a John word in the New Testament. And here it is getting used multiple times in the book of Hebrews. You're like, but I thought you said this felt like Matthew. It does feel like Matthew. And it feels like Paul. And it feels like Luke. Like we see these hints throughout Hebrews that I'm, I'm becoming more and more convinced 
Parisia helps me, that Hebrews was written by a group of disciples. It's why we don't have a name on the front. They got together to write this. This was kind of a treatise that they wrote to the early church. So we're supposed to have that kind of confidence. Go out and talk about our faith freely. You know, we find the, the road worker and we have to stop our car and you're like, are you, a, are you following Christ today? Why don't you? You know, just that boldness and enthusiasm. We're supposed to actually cling to that because the longer we're alive in Christ, the harder it is to continue being bold and enthusiastic. And you have, so what do we got to do to renew that boldness? We rejoice of the hope to choose joy. We put it back on all the way through our lives. So we have this regular habit of putting on hope and rejoicing. It's why we meet and we sing songs together. I, again, I think singing songs together is a flat-out miracle. It is not something in my flesh I think of doing outside of church. Like you ever go into a Costco and you just start thinking, we should all start singing together. In the movies, they'll have fantasy sequences like that. I think musicals are like these fantasy things where everybody breaks out in song all the time. But it's not normal human behavior in any other situation other than that God tells us to rejoice and put on our joy and our worship. So we do, and it refuels us every week. So our joy is found in holding fast and in taking heed to things. It's our first love. You can't hold fast to a career and have it give you anything back. It just sucks you. You can't hold fast to a hobby. It's just going to eat all your money. You can't even hold fast to other people because at some point they'll fail you. But you can hold fast to your hope in Jesus Christ who has never failed. And it's a concept that's going to get expanded here. This danger of doubting that is what, where we're going to go in verse 7. There's, that, that if we're to hold on to our confidence, our bold speaking, and we do that by rejoicing in the hope all the way to the end of our lives, what could possibly get in the way of that? Doubt. When we don't see signs and wonders every day, do you still have that faith and are you still clinging to it? When you go a few months and you haven't heard from the Lord in any sort of significant way, are you still holding fast to the things God told you to hold fast to? And I think those are tests. God wants to know how durable we are. So we never lose this attitude or grow passive, and that's where we're headed. If you flip forward a few pages, look at chapter 10, verse 35. That's where we're going with this. And again, it's going to take us a while to work through that thought. These are definitely Greek philosophy structures. But we never let go of our first joy. It's not a small thought of that. So verse 7 says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice. Again, they just slide this stuff in. When it says the Holy Spirit says, and then it starts quoting Psalm, um, which Psalm is this, 95? They're indicating that the Holy Spirit worked through David to write Psalm 95. This is where we say the Bible is the inspired word of God. It's because the Bible says it is. And the, the Holy Spirit actually works through flawed people, but when they put pen to paper, they're not flawed anymore. And that's why it's so interesting to me to see the amount of perfection throughout the word of God. It's because dopey people like us wrote this book but something inspired the writers when they did it god gives this exact same topic as hebrews and i think it's interesting here because the writer of hebrews isn't giving this warning that we're going to get to in verse 12 13 he's not going to give the warning before he cites the word of god and i think that's an important thing and just as somebody who teaches the word i never want to say something that i can't show in the word of god and that's hard to do. Like, that's a standard to have. But Hebrews, I think, is doing this because it's like putting up a buffer between them and the angry Jewish people. Like, don't blame me. The Old Testament says what I'm about to say. Therefore, 
as the Holy Spirit says, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in rebellion in the day of the trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Don't blame the writer of Hebrews. God said this through David in the Psalms, and you've already said the Psalms are God's holy scriptures. And, I, and again, I, I like this because it's basically saying, it's not me saying this, it's the scriptures saying this. And they can go right to the word of God and say it. So the hardening of hearts is, therefore, something that can happen, and remember the audience, to people that have already accepted Christ Jesus, us. We need to be wary of our hearts getting hard. And, not be, and so the quote, the quote here is parenthetical. It links down to verse 12 where they're going to come make the same point. But they're throwing this quote in to back up their point. If Jews believe Jesus is the Messiah, they, can't, they have to be able to let go of the things that the Messiah says to let go of. And that's really tough to do. Right, and there's a cost. We have people like this today, where there's a there's like part of the cost of converting. If you're a Hindu or a Muslim, you might get killed by your own family. Like you could be murdered for your belief. We don't struggle with any kind of. We just get families thinking we're nuts. Right, that's nothing compared to families coming after us. So it says today, if you will hear, we're going to see the word today again and again and again through the rest of the chapter. Today does two things. First, it's an invitation. Like if I say, yeah, let's go out to eat sometime. That's not an, like, really, that's vague. We don't have a date set. We don't have anything. But when I say, why don't you come over to eat today? That's a real invitation. And it's God inviting people with a day and a time right now. And it's sincere. The second thing today does is it makes this message of Hebrews eternal. Because if I always know that the date is today and I'm always living today, it means I'm always paying attention to this warning. So it's expressed with a hope or a wish. Those little Jewish students that grew up knowing the word would know that Hebrews 95 doesn't start with the warning that's quoted in verses 7 through 10, 7 through 11. That, that Hebrews 95 actually starts with joy, right? And so did Hebrews. It says we hold on to our joy. The beginning of Hebrews 90, or Psalm 95 is, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto him with the psalms. We all know that verse. We love that verse. We don't memorize the, the middle of the psalm, which is don't harden your hearts. So it's the same message as Hebrews. We, we cling and we hold fast to Jesus through our joy and our hope in Jesus Christ, and we renew that by rejoicing. And Psalm says the same thing. We rejoice, but don't harden your hearts. This is part of how we fight that. It's the opposite of hardening our hearts is to constantly come before God and worship. To sing out loud takes a little courage. It's a sacrifice. That first love, joyous salvation, thankfulness, singing, and worship, hold fast to it. Don't let that go. Right? And I, it's so precious. It's a natural reaction when anybody gets saved. For Star Wars lovers, when R2-D2 shuts off the trash compactor in episode 4 their natural reaction is to scream and yell and celebrate and whoop and holler to the point C-3PO thinks they're dying. Our natural reaction when we're saved is the same thing. I can't believe God loves me. 
I can't believe my sins are forgiven. We, many people describe when they do their first prayer of salvation, this weight lifted off their shoulders. Like God just released them from their prison. And they got a long journey ahead of them, but there is a thankfulness that's that initial thankfulness. It's like your first day on the job. And you're like, ah, oh, I love this job. This is so great. I'm so excited. But after 10 years, that excitement fades. It's natural. Don't let it happen. Proclaim Jesus. Love Jesus. Remember that. Hang around with new believers so you know what it looks like again. And remember that God saved you. So here's the other thing. Today, if you will hear his voice, that's in the third person. Do not harden your hearts as rebellion as in the day of the trials of the wilderness where your fathers tested me and tried me. That goes right to the first person. Did you see that? Here's the significance, I think. God is saying this as he is coming himself. It's a messianic psalm. He's talking about Jesus. If you hear his voice, salvation, Jesus, and then all of a sudden Jesus takes over the dialogue where you tried me. And, and God as Jesus has been there for all of it. So for them is the future tense, but for us, because we have heard from Jesus, this is in the past tense. You will hear his voice. In the day of trials, that's a reference to Numbers 20. The people rebel against Moses and God's new law, uh, and they use that. The, the, uh, the day of trial that's there is the same one that gets used in... in, in uh, I'll skip that point. Our failure to respond to God is a test of God's faithfulness. Notice that the word test is there. They tested me. They tried me. When we disobey God, we're actually testing God. When God allows things to happen to us, he's testing us. It kind of goes two ways. But when you test someone in that kind of way, that's not a good thing. When I test God, that doesn't mean that God didn't love Israel. This is important because Christians are like, well, if I sin and God's angry at me, God being angry at us, thank goodness, is not the same thing as God abandoning us. And when we try God, which we do every time we fail him, that doesn't mean he doesn't love us. It doesn't mean that his promises go away. His promises to Israel, every single one of them is kept. So when it says, I was angry with that generation, we have to know that the character of God's anger is very different than our anger. That when God gets angry, there is a wrath to it, that is controlled and under control. And here's the other thought. People say, well, the Old Testament's full of this big wrathful God, but here's the New Testament in Hebrews referencing an old, a wrathful God. In other words, the God hasn't changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's absolutely a lie. In fact, there's more discussion about hell in the New Testament than there is in the Old Testament. Like, this is a danger when we get God upset with us. The warnings in the New Testament are emphatic. The warnings in the Old Testament are instructional. And here's why. If God was setting things up in the Old Testament for Jesus, he's not going to hold Old Testament human beings as accountable to those who have the full revelation of Jesus. So these warnings that are prophetic are really written for us. God, when he gets angry, the other thing he does is he increases support for them, right? So when God does anger, he provides them the law, he provides them a priesthood, he provides them manna, food every day. He provides them a set of rules that create an entirely new culture where they can serve God. He tells them about feasts. All of this is done after they anger God. When God gets angry, he starts teaching. When we get angry, we just throw in the towel and walk away or we punch, right? But when God gets angry, he's like, okay, I got to do more to help these people. 
Still, their, hard, their rebellion hardens over 40 years. What happens to people that aren't obeying God is it gets harder and harder to obey God because you've hardened your heart. You've not done it, and then you've come up for reasons why you haven't done it. And i got to tell you, the American church today is full of this garbage. Excuses after excuses are the hardening of heart that happens when you stop doing what God's told you to do. When we refuse God's gifts and provision, it's evil and it's hard-hearted. Matthew 12, 31, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven except the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which will never be forgiven. If you disregard God's voice in your ear for your entire life, that doesn't get forgiven. Every other sin can be forgiven. It's interesting when the writer of Numbers brings up this day of rebellion where they don't go into the wilderness. Numbers 14. He doesn't bring up the rebellion of Korah. He doesn't bring up uh, the golden calf situation. You'd think the golden calf situation would have been the one that caused 40 years in the wilderness. It wasn't. It was their refusal to do what was God had commanded them to do. In other words, it wasn't their sin that gave them 40 years in the wilderness. It was their disobedience, which is a kind of sin, that gave them 40 years in the wilderness. They didn't listen to God when he directly told them to do something. That makes the commandments of Jesus really significant. Like, again, this is going to hit really hard. <laughs> it hit me really hard all week. So I'm glad to get it off my chest. Every single one of the Israelites believed in God. Believing in God isn't going to save you from God's anger. Obeying God is what they did wrong that incurred the anger of God. This is a really important point. We always, they always go astray in their heart. God sees that humans are eternally evil. Every single one of them does wrong. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's a spiritual law. So if we don't live on Jesus' word and commands and do what he's told us to do, we're going to harden our hearts against it. And there is a danger in doing that, which is you can never enter into God's promised land. You'll get to the end of your life and you'll say, Lord, Lord, and he'll say, who are you? You've never listened to me. We've never talked. Who do you think you are? Well, I went to church my whole life. I don't care. I didn't tell you to go to church your whole life. I told you to have a relationship with me. I told you to obey my commands. You never did that. I moved mountains. I did miracles. I went on mission trips. I didn't tell you to do all that stuff. You never listened to me. You did all this stuff because you wanted to do that stuff. Matthew 13, 22. Again, don't just listen to me on this. The seed fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word and all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth and no fruit is produced. They go their whole life living for themselves. Not that they doubt God's word. They believe it all. If you say, are you a believer? I believe all of it. There's an immediate consequence. You don't get the joy of the Lord and there can be an eternal consequence if that goes on too long. They have not known my ways. That's a simple, clear statement from God. There is a justification process that happens. And the question that that demands is, okay, what are God's ways? If what saves me is to know God's ways, to accept his grace, this gift that's waiting for me. So for starters, you got the law, right? The, the use of God's ways is over 2,000 times used in the Old Testament. So for seconders, you've got the word of God, like read it, and you'll know what God wants of you. And then you get the teachings of Jesus, Right? So I'm going to read a set of, we just got on with Matthew, so it's fresh in my head. You can go to any of the Gospels and find the way of the Lord is a 
a, a, a mantra that gets used both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. At the very end of the Old Testament, Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. We're supposed to learn what this way is. Right? You accept the gift of salvation. Step two, figure out how God wants you to live. And the, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, that's Jesus, in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. Matthew 3.3. 3. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. That's John the Baptist. He prepared the way. Matthew 22.16. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anybody. You don't regard the person of men. In other words, Jesus had confidence in that bold speaking kind of way. Jesus taught us the way. He spoke boldly. There's a way that leads to life. That's God's way. And there's a way that leads to death. That's our, that's, that's our way. The way we choose to do it. We're all invited to follow Jesus' example. And we're all invited to follow the way. It's really, really simple. God made it so simple, anybody could understand that idea. But doing it is a lifetime journey. Doing it takes maturity. Matthew 13, 17, I tell you the truth, many prophets in righteousness long to see what you see, but they didn't see it. They long to hear what you hear. They didn't hear it. There are lots of righteous people before Jesus that really wanted to meet the Messiah. Yet we have the honor and the privilege of meeting the Messiah, and we still choose our own way. And same as the Israelites in, the, in the, the wilderness, they went 40 years and continually saw God's wonders and they still went their own way. It's not seeing the miracle or knowing the miracle or believing the miracle. It's choosing to believe it in such a way that we actually do what we believe. That we're true on the inside like we are on the outside. Verse 11 says, So I swore in my wrath. That's not God using swear words. That's God making a vow. He's a resolved position as he sees humanity do this. After a lifetime of tests, they never show confidence in God's ability to keep his promises. So I say, oh, I believe God, but then you don't do what he says to do? No, you really don't believe God. You're lying to yourself. It's a dangerous thing. It says they always choose themselves. Always. They consistently do it. They shall not, and these are the Israelites. These are the chosen people of God. And Hebrews is saying to the church, the audience here is the church the chosen high priests of God. This is a danger for us, not for non-believers. We have to be worried about this. They shall not enter my rest. At the end of the day, God doesn't let them go into the promised land after 40 years. I wonder if Israel just repented and they started to do God's will on year two, if God would have relented on the 40 years. But he gives them a generation to test it. The temple's going to get destroyed soon after Hebrews. So this warning in the book of Hebrews, there's a season between Jesus' resurrection and when the temple gets destroyed. I think that's interesting. It's like they were, God was giving the Jews as much of a chance as possible to follow Christ. And at some point, the temple's going to go down because it lost God's protection and Satan still hates the images of God and wanted that temple to go down badly. And God let, lets it happen. So if Jesus is eternal... and he's created a way to do it, then that judgment that God brought on the temple is a warning to us as a church. There is a point where the age of the church will end. And one wonders where we will be and what side will we be on when that happens. 
Jesus makes this so clear, John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You can't get to heaven through the Judaic system anymore. It's done and it's finished. And again, that's the message of the Gospels. It's an offensive message to the Jewish people because you're saying that those traditions that God himself made through Moses no longer do the trick. So here's the warning. Then we get back to verse 12. Then he says the same warning himself. He just quoted the scriptures. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The word beware, I don't need to interpret. We should be thinking about this. Don't not think about it because you think you're good. Take the time to think about it. Consider it. And then it says, beware, brethren, and then lest there be any of you. It's spoken to a group of people, right? He's not talking to individuals. He's talking to the church as a whole, all of us. Claiming Jesus but not doing Jesus is a, a danger that we have as a body. And we have individual responsibility for it, but the group will suffer if individuals do it. Brethren, brothers and sisters. Again, he's speaking truth, but there's a deep level of love there. We're family. Beware because this is sneaky stuff. This stuff creeps up on you and pounces like a puma. It'll get you. 2 Timothy 4.3, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall keep to themselves teachers having itching ears. Man, I pray that I just stick to the scriptures, that I'm not an itchy ears preacher. And today's a good thing of that. Like I'm assuming I will at some point rub everyone wrong in this room because that's what Hebrews did to me all week. It's just abrasive. And it's like, ah, oh, I don't want to hear this. But the application of verse 12 is pretty obvious. Just like they wrote this, the same is true today. We have to take heed lest there be any of this going on today. We have to get rid of this. Frankly, it's part of why we started this Bible study, is that our family was just tired of having our ears tickled. We had to hear the whole entirety of the Word of God. So we choose to minimize this, we welcome the evil heart of unbelief into our lives. If we choose to not think about this, we actively are defying God because we're told here to think about it. Matthew 15, 17, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Oh, I love the Lord, but then I don't do it. I'm saved by grace, but I, I like to do that on my own terms, right? It, our hearts often approach God's word like we're in a position to judge God's word. Have you heard this in the church? I'm going to give a bunch of these. This is absolute, don't, don't mistake me or take this out of context. What I'm about to say is absolute evil according to this verse. Evil heart of unbelief. Unbelief being not doing what we're told to do. So listen to this. That idea that I can be saved by grace but I can do it my way, it's totally evil in the church right now. And it's, total, it's running rampant that holding fast to Jesus and being bold about it, that's kind of optional because we don't want to offend people. That's nonsense. If they're offended, it's good. They have, they have a conscience still. And, or I'm just working out my faith right now. How arrogant are you? What's to work out? Here's another one. I'm struggling right now. Really, are you struggling more than Jesus did? Because he struggled quite a bit for you. How, are you struggling the same way? I don't see whip marks on your back. How's that struggling going? I'm really trying to work things out for the Lord. Well, what do you mean you're trying? Is God untrustworthy? He didn't expect you to do anything. It's not on you, right? That's just a lame excuse. It's all self-standard. I got more of them. I, I was just making lists. 
frankly, these all came from my own heart, right? These are ones I've used. Uh, I don't need this command. That's, you know, like this command I can let go a little bit, or this one I'll obey. But these, I'm going to pick and choose which commands I have. This is all over the church right now. Really? You think you get to pick and choose which commands are there? You're the judge now, not God? You get to decide which ones to follow and which ones not to? Well, yeah, because some of them are culturally relative. Are they? Don't lust after, you know, don't covet. Don't steal. Don't murder even in your heart against other people. That's culturally contextualized. Is it? Really? Beware of this, brothers and sisters. We got to beware of this. I don't agree with this or that or this. That's all relative to these things. Okay, well, you're making your own religion then. You're no longer following Christ. You're following you because you're making all the decisions. This is a danger. These apologetics we don't do with unbelievers. Again, Hebrews is written to us in the church. Or you'll get people like this. Oh, I'm a believer, but I don't go to church anymore. There's just too many hypocrites in the church. Really? Well, Dang, when you don't show up, I guess that's, you know, we're changing the percentage even further towards the hypocrites. Or a, a friend of mine says, if you're hiding behind hypocrites, then how small does that make you? Right? You're, you're smaller than whatever you hide behind. So if there's too many hypocrites in the church, please come back to church because we need at least one person who can see clearly and not be a hypocrite. Like you should therefore be in the church helping us not be hypocrites because we're supposed to do this. This is where the verses are going to go in the next couple of verses. Or here's another one. Well, I went to church, but I just don't like being judged. And the church people are so judgmental. Well, are you being judged by God because you're doing things that disagree with God or are you being judged by us? Because I don't have a lot of judgment in my heart. I'm really hesitant to do that. But I will repeat to you the things that have already been decided by God. But on the what color clothes to wear, that's a judgment call we get to make because it's not in the scriptures. Like, I'll give you my opinion, and I'm trying not to be judgmental. But... That idea that people don't want to come to church because they feel convicted? That's sad. What a sad lie you're telling yourself. Be wary, an evil heart of unbelief. You don't believe what God has said. Or you think it's your right to choose to believe or not believe certain parts of the Bible. That's dangerous. Matthew 12, 36. I tell you this, you must give an account on the judgment day for every idle word you speak. This causes some people to just never open their mouth about anything that's not Jesus. And I don't think that's what it's saying here. But these things I just got done saying, these, they're idle words. They're worthless words. How was your day is very worthful. That's called fellowship. It's a connection. How was shooting at the range with you guys? That's not an idle word. That's connecting with other people. An idle world is when you say something worthless or vain, selfish. You propagate sins in the church like, I'm going to pick and choose what I believe. They're all excuses, and we shouldn't participate in them. That's not partaking in fellowship. It's partaking in ourselves. And here's the thing. <laughs> here's another one. Well, I'm not my brother's keeper. The Bible says that. Does it? Really? Well, I don't want to pick this. I don't, I, I don't, wanna, I don't, want, don't pick the, the speck out of my eye when you've got a log in your own eye. Right? That's the same kind of hypocrite argument. Well, that's an interesting thing, because I don't remember Jesus saying not to pick the specks out. In fact, he said quite the opposite. Take the log out of your own eye before you help someone get the speck out of theirs. We're supposed to be seeking and pursuing holiness so that we can help disciple other people. I'm not getting anything out of church anymore. That Dickers, he, he teaches the same thing every darn week. Well, you're not here to hear the teaching alone. You're here to fellowship with other believers, and that's important. So if I, I'm repeating myself because you've been here for 
years on end, then it's time for you to start repeating what's being said to other people too. If you know it that well, it's time to start doing it. So how do I avoid this? How do I avoid the idea that Jesus said, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. Anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me, Matthew 12, 30. How do I avoid that? Because it doesn't seem like this kind of sin is an active one. It seems like it's a sin of being passive. Remember our salvation, keep our boldness, return to our joy. Here's the, the, the end thing is, we don't avoid this. We don't. You don't avoid this. We avoid this. I've emphasized a few times he's talking to groups of people here. I don't think as an individual we can avoid that evilness in our heart. But I think as a body of believers, we can avoid this evilness. Because when we're deceived, we can't see it ourselves. That's the nature of deception. When we exhort one another, verse 13, but exhort one another daily, that's the solution to this problem. But exhort one another daily while it's called today. Again, they're emphasizing it. This is every single day we do this. Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. This is the danger. Verse 13, exhort, is parakaleo. It's a great word. It's the compound of two words, together and calling. It's together calling, parakaleo, exhort. So that's an odd thing. But together calling one another daily. That's a really weird word. And it's unique in the Christian faith that we have this word. It is, in the Greek, it would be used to call somebody to your side. So you're out on the battlefield, things are going bad, and you yell over and say, Tom, I need help. That's exhorting. And I think we think of exhorting as a singular activity, like to tell somebody they're sinning. That's rebuking. Exhorting is to say, hey, you, get over here. I'm in trouble. I need your help. But it goes the other way, too. Exhorting is like a spiritual snuggle right? It also includes the meaning of beseeching somebody, but it also is to console them, right? It is to summon or to beg help from someone, but it's also to encourage and teach someone. It is the together calling, all of it. It's the whole thing. And that word for exhort in the church, but exhort one another daily. So we are supposed to be daily together calling. We live life together. It is our defense against hardening our heart. Like when, I've, when we found out Britta was sick, like immediately our hearts were like, oh, and we haven't been praying for her. We found out too late. Who would find that out and not share it with her family, right? Because we want to be praying for Britta every day. And we just, we feel like we, we, we failed when we don't do that. So we're supposed to do it with one another. Again, he's using the word brethren here, brothers and sisters. Let's be close. Let's exhort one another. The closer we get, two things happen. One, the more we bug one another. You ever notice that? The closer you get to other human beings, the more you see their failings and the more they bug you. Then you get over that because we're supposed to forgive one another's trespasses and then you have a relationship that goes much, much deeper than an acquaintance. It, it, you have to go through that. So we bug one another, then we love one another, then we can refine one another. It's a progressive relationship. So when somebody's kind of in and out and in and out and in and out, and then they get all upset that you don't have a relationship, it's like, well, you're never here. I can't, I can't help that. And, and the, the, the idea of living daily with one another is something that in the first century they did. Again, this is, church is much more than just the teaching we do every week. It really is the fellowship of the saints. It's praying together. 
It's eating together. It's worshiping together. All of it together is exhorting. Of course we hear the word of God. Of course God raises up some people that will teach it for us. But this is a deception that happens in the church that is just the teaching. Like I can go online and listen to a podcast, and that's nice for me, but that is not the church. It's just listening to a teaching, right? So this, this too is part of this deception. So I did some homework. 22% of Christians as of this point have not returned to church after they stopped going because of COVID. 22, one in five Christians just stopped going. Why? Because they could listen to a teaching online and the church they went to, all it was was a teaching and some great songs. Well, I can listen to great songs online and I can listen to a teaching online. So what am I missing? So one in five believers just went, bam, next to nothing. They've been deceived. There's no other way to put that. We're supposed to exhort one another daily. How do you do that with a podcast? Well, people start texting or they start putting comments in the thread. Brothers and sisters, that is not what the Bible's talking about. We're supposed to exhort one another daily. So what's amazing to me is first the government said to do it. Now we have Christians saying it to themselves. I don't have to go to church. It's bad. And so when we hold fast and we exhort one another, we're doing that in such a way that we can be better and closer to Jesus. So this makes the church essential. It makes it essential to everything. If you have an eye for things like this, we need you in the church. If you're attending, and again, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir because everybody's here, right? If you're attending a church but not living life with the people in it, you're going to a false church. And, and again, I'm not, this is so hard to teach on because Steph and I did this, I would say, for 20 years. We went to a church. We did not live life with those people. I recognized some of them. I'd say hi to some of them. We even went out to lunch once in a while with some of them. We were not living life with those people. We stopped going to church. Nobody noticed. If you stop going to the church you're in, podcasters, if you stop going to your church, will anybody notice that you're gone? Is the brick being pulled out of the house because you're missing that week? Is the church not whole because you're not there? Exhort one another daily while it's called today. You don't get this option when there's COVID restrictions. That's not the day you can skip doing that. Right? If, if nothing else to keep each other healthy, we're constantly calling each other, texting. Steph gets phone calls all week. I'm kind of sad because the guys, we don't talk that much. But the ladies, Lisa, I think you called like every day this week. And you know what? That's a huge blessing. That's living life together. That's exhorting one another. Exhorting includes encouraging, comforting. It's not always just addressing failing areas. It's, it's the opposite too. It's come on over here. I need you as a friend. And to have that need for one another is a beautiful thing. It's what the world wants that we have. It's that thing. So we need our speck cleaning all the time, right? Cast the beam out of your own eye, and then you shall see clearly to cast out the moat of your brother's eye. If we're walking with the Lord, we have a clarity of vision. We can see what's right and what's wrong, and we help each other get there. Not to accuse each other, judge one another, but because we love the Lord. This is really convicting when it says daily. We actually see each other face-to-face one out of seven days a week. The Church of Acts saw each other every night, right? They lived together. They hung out together. They ate supper together. Well, what about getting out in the world? They're out in the world all day with their jobs. We get plenty of the world. We don't get enough of the kingdom of God. 
And this is, this is convicting for me because our entire culture has shifted on this. You know, when you see little steeples in every small town, it's because that whole town were a group of believers, in the Midwest at least, that largely settled on that spot of land because they're going to live life together. They were friends. They knew each other. When they wanted to raise a barn, they all showed up at, at that hot person's house and they rose a barn together. And they made the work light with many hands. They lived life together. We have eras of history where that's happened, and God has flourished and blessed people when they do that. Christians work together and meet together. They did morning devotions together, evening study and prayer together. And it's no wonder when they lived that way, the way of God, they did that, that the church exploded. It's not just what we mentally believe that makes us Christians. It's how we live our life that makes us Christians. And it should look different. So this is where I'm going to defend going shooting with the guys, game nights, hobbies, picnics, baptisms, barbecues, going out to dinner with each other, hanging out and doing things. All of that falls under exhorting one another. It's important. People make fun of me. People make fun of bingo nights at a church. Maybe they should, because we should be learning the word, too. That's part of what we're commanded to do. But those other six days of the week, hanging out is absolutely a blessing. I'm blessed every time I go out with church people. I come home encouraged, fed, renewed. And I think sometimes as believers, especially Calvary Chapel people, we get kind of down on game nights. But I don't know that we should, because that is part of how we encourage one another, is we just live life with each other. It's important. It does not diminish the teaching of the word, praying together, evangelizing our faith out in the world. Like it doesn't diminish any of those things, but it is part of how we live. While it's called today, that's the writer emphasizing this today thing, not me, but I get so busy. Well, then let the busy stuff go away and let the church stuff remain. That's how it goes. So day to day, we gather, we read, we worship, we pray, we fellowship. That's what we do. That's the way of God. It's not a hard thing. I know I'm dwelling on this a little bit because I looked it up on Google and Google told me I could be a Christian without going to church. Can I? Lifeway study with a 2,500 uh, survey responses in 2019, only 32% of believers say that they read the Bible daily. 12% of people that call themselves Christians have never read the Bible. One in 10. You go to an Eagle Brook, we're talking about hundreds of people in that room, statistically, that have not even read a Bible. And they call themselves Christians. Two years later, 2021, in another study with 3,500 respondents, huge drop in numbers. 11% said they read the Bible. That went from 32 to 11% in two years. That's a massive statistical change that read their Bible every day. Then here's the other number. It went from 12% never readers to 29% never readers. In two years, you guys, 2021, 2019 to 2021, it absolutely switched. Why did it switch? You would think if everybody's home by themselves watching screens, we'd all be in the Word all the time. Well, yeah, I read it every day. I got plenty of time now. I, never have to, I don't have to commute to work. And, so I saved all that commuting time, but it, it definitely didn't get put into Bible reading. These are Christians. This is in the church, y'all. These aren't the non-believers saying they don't read the Bible. There is then, this is, the study also showed, therefore, we don't know causation, but we do know there's a correlation between attending church and Bible reading. We also know from the same study, Bible reading correlates with thinking about God throughout the day, another question in the study. How often do you meditate on the Lord? And the people that said they read the Bible were more likely to think about the Lord. 
So all of these things correlate. When you shut down churches and there's less gathering, guess what? There's less Bible reading. There's less thinking about the Lord. The people of God are not armed. They're not ready and they're not doing their thing. So you'd say, well, Sean, you're just making attendance a thing. Well, I don't know. 32% of Christians say the Bible does not have everything we need to know for life. One in three. It's just, that means there's people in this room that believe that. If I'm stepping on your toes, good. 13% of Christians say we'd be better off without the Bible. Probably the same people that don't read it. Barnapol also showed an unprecedented drop in one year from 14 to 9% of Christians. That's the deceitfulness of sin. I don't need to do these things. What difference does it make if I go to church or not? I can hear a sermon online. What difference does it make if I read the Bible or not? I can, that doesn't make any difference. What difference does it make if I fellowship with people or not? What difference does Christianity make? Well, apparently to you, nothing, because you don't enjoy any of the things that are joyful in Christianity. So there's nothing there. That's the deceitfulness of sin in our verse. We believe we can persevere without the church. If we believe that, we're lying to ourselves. According to Hebrews, it's not truth. Just because you identify as a Christian doesn't mean that you are a Christian. We're struggling with this identify thing in our culture right now. You can't just identify as things. You actually have to live in a certain way. People would say, you're judging me, Sean. You're saying I'm not a Christian. I'm not saying it. I'm reading it. <laughs> it's not me saying it. Exhort one another daily. Passivity here is the sin. If we're too busy, too distracted, or too entertained to hang out with other Christians, we're not exhorting one another daily. We're not living the life. Our culture makes light of not believing in Jesus. Like it's no big thing. People just say, oh, I'm just not into all that. Like think of what they're saying. They're blaspheming the Holy Spirit when they do that. Like it doesn't matter. That's the precise exercise of verse 9. They always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So who wins in that situation? The enemies of God win. And our culture is being swallowed up in those two years. Look at the changes in our culture in only two years. With the Christians not doing their thing, what has happened to our culture has been absolutely ground-shaking. It's been seismic, right? Safety is more important than freedom. Infant sacrifice is more important than inconvenience. Man and women, we don't even know what they are anymore because we identify. Skipping the Bible is okay. It's at the same level. And we get so worked up about what the world wants us to think about, but we forget our own Bible study. Or we forget to check in with people or call people. Or we forget to share each other's burdens. Right? Same deceptions, same deceiver, same tactics. We should know this is coming as a, as a body. Inconvenience leads to isolation, which leads to self-focus, which leads to damnation. It's a path, and it's not new. Skipping fellowship, skipping prayer, skipping worship, skipping Bible reading, anytime we don't feel like it, lets our feelings dominate what God has told us to do. We really don't believe God means what he says. We might say we believe it, but we don't. Because if we did, we would act on it. If I'm hanging off a cliff, gripping a rope as tight as I can, I am believing that rope can save me. I cling to it. I hold fast until the end. And the end happens one way or the other. It either happens when I let go, or it happens when somebody pulls the rope up. 
but my job is to hang on to it, to cling to it is the verse, to hold fast. These things are commanded and it's disobedience to ignore it and to ignore it is then sin. What could be worse than that? To know the truth of God and just make light of it. Here's the good news that's been a real downer. In the same two-year period, amongst non-believers, there's been a 20% increase in curiosity about the church and the word of God. And those that are out in the mission field, I hear it from all of them. Trevor was going nuts about the growth of Messianic Jews in the last two years. Amy talks about it with Muslims being open to hearing the word of God. Massive shift outside the church. We want to know more about God but the church itself is so weak we don't even have the ability to tell them in mass. It's tragic. It's like the end times are almost here when the church can't take care of the house we've been given by God to deal with. Moses' house made it for 1,500 years. How long will our house last? It lasts as long as we do it together. Not individual, we. It's a group effort. And if we fail in keeping our house together, then we have not been as faithful as Moses. Jesus has the parable of the servants. One of them says, no, I don't want to do it, but then they repent and they do it. And the other one says, yes, I'll do it, and then they don't do it. Remember that from Matthew? Here's Jesus' response at the end of that. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. The 20% of the people interested in the things of God right now may get into the kingdom of God before we do. I don't know how to make that any softer or more gentle of a message. And I don't know if I want to. We may not get in and they might. And that's the difference. What's better, the person who does the will of their father or the person who says they'll do it but they don't do it? Exhort one another daily. Please don't see that as judgment. It is absolutely a blessing from the kingdom of God that we get to do this with each other. We get to be this kind of body. It's beautiful. Church, to avoid unbelief, we create a healthy, loving, faithful community that is our battle, that is our weapon. And we do it today. We do it with God's work. If you have a stick that's smoldering and you have it be by itself, it will fizzle out and smoke and die. If you take that same smoldering stick and you throw it into a bundle of Twix, you will get a fire that erupts out of the fire pit. When Christians gather together, the fire erupts. When we're all off on our own, it, does, it fizzles and dies. Matthew 12, 48, Jesus said, Who's my mother and who are my brothers? And then he pointed to his disciples and said, Look, these are my mother and brothers. He just, I wonder which of the disciples he pointed at when he said my mother. Right? These are my mother and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. We will not harden if we hang out together. That's also the promise of these verses. If we proactively encourage one another in their walk, that's our focus. That's our family. And, it's, and, 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 and Jesus, I think, is addressing kind of the same idea of Hebrews is that sometimes you've got to tell your family that this family is the one that you're here to enjoy. This is what you're called to. And that's not like cults where they're like, never talk to your family. It's quite the opposite. We want to invite our family. Wouldn't it be great if all of our immediate families decided to join us? Like, we want the door open. That's the, quite the opposite of what cults do, right? Don't talk to your parents. They're going to correct you. And we want you to do these weird things with us. We're, that's not what happens in the church. We want to invite people. So we'll come back to this idea in Hebrews 10, because this is kind of what Hebrews is going to keep pounding on. Um, 
The Jews are still going to synagogues of which God has lifted his Holy Spirit. They're going to dead churches. And they have to stop doing this. And I don't want to pick on other people's ministries and churches and whatnot, but I've met so many people where they, they almost feel like, well, I go to this church, but... And I, I know it's a church for seeker believers and whatever, and, and that makes me so sad because it's like, if you really think that, then why, if everyone in that church just stopped going, the church would disappear in a week. Like, churches need attendees. Stop attending. I don't know where to go if I do that. Well, we got a Bible study over at my house. We will fit 3,000 people. If we have to, we'll find a way to do it. Might be outside for a few weeks. It's a difficult topic to teach on. This is a really hard topic to teach on. This is almost up there with tithing and sexual topics. Because in saying attend church, it sounds like I'm saying as a pastor attend church. I really, that's the hardest part about this. Like whenever I'd go to church and people would talk about my tithing and money, I'd think, oh, that pastor just wants all our money. And honestly, I'm really cynical like that. And whenever they would talk about the need to go to church and partake of the body of Christ, I would think, ah, they just want to guilt trip me into attending more. Who does that person think they are? So I'm teaching it because it's here. I don't think any pastor wants to teach on this topic, but here's the thing. Both tithing, sexual purity, and attendance at church are all things that are good for us. It's not that God needs our money or needs our attendance. God really doesn't need anything. He's perfect, perfected, perfection. But we need these things. They're good for us when we have healthy lifestyle habits that the God has told us to have. The church doesn't need us, but we are better when we're all together. So the truth of it is, in the same way I need to let go of money, I need to let go of my time, I need to let go of worldly habits in my life, I need to let go of the idea that I can do this alone, that I'm somehow some bastion of pillar of strength on my own. That's a deception in itself. It's vanity. So if we think we're greater than Moses because he failed, all of the Israelites failed, by the way, they saw miracles every day, and they all failed. Every single one of them were always sinful in their heart. Or do we think we're better than they were? When we think we can do it alone, do we think we're better than the disciples because the disciples all failed? Or realistically... Are we better than the writer of Hebrews because we know better than what this writer is saying or writers, plural? That's really convicting for me because the true answer is no, I'm not any better than these people. I will fail and I will fall and I will be deceived and I will harden my heart the more time I spend away from the people of God because that's my flesh. That's the battle I need to fight until the end. And thousands of Christians today think they're above these basic spiritual laws of life. They think they're better than this. Thousands of them. I taught at a college where I think almost 95% of them thought they were better than these rules, that they could just do it their way. How arrogant, how deceived that is. How sad that is. How far away from God's heart is it when people think they know better than God. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's easy to go to destruction. We don't even have to try but there are many who go in by it. Enter by the narrow gate. The God's way is to break bread, worship, study, pray, fellowship, and exhort each other daily. That's God's way. And there aren't other ways to do that. And I'm not trying to give a guilt trip. I'm trying to give an invitation. Come on over here. Come close. Let's gather. I like the phrase, let's have a spiritual snuggle. Let's get close. 
To get close means I have to trust not only my God, but you. We have to trust failed human beings that we can get close to people and not have our hearts broken. Verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Partakers there is metokos, to share in or be a partner or co-worker. We do this together. Participator. We believe, we partake. They're, they're the two parts. Honestly, it's the difference between a point on a grid and a line on a grid. The prayer of salvation is a point. The line is what we're trying to create. We partake. It doesn't say that we're partakers if we said a prayer 20 years ago. That's just the point that we started at. It does say we're partakers if we hold the beginning. That means that joy of salvation. Steadfast till the end. We keep it up. Uh, Paul described that he's running a race. So he's going to prepare for it like an athlete. He's going to dig into it and he's going to grind it out. And he loves to run. It's a good thing. We're so excited to open the word. Most of you, when you first started getting Bible study, like real Bible study, you're like, this is awesome. Can we renew that joy in ourselves every week? This is awesome. So, and I thank you for your prayers because I had some people praying for me about that this week. And man, I had fun this week. I appreciate the prayers. I need it. He's talking the plurality. It says, we have become in verse 14. It doesn't say you. It's not individual. He's talking to a church. Again, this is going to be really important when we get to chapters 5 and 6. He's talking to a group of people. Baptism that we had the other week. 60 people showed up. 10 people got baptized. I got to tell you, that was a little glimpse of heaven, folks. That's what God wanted for his people. He wants us to be able to do that. And it's a total blessing when we do it. Like before you're coming, you're like, oh, I don't know if I want to get up and do this. And, you know, I got to get there. But once you get there, it's a total blessing. Isn't that just the flesh versus the spirit? I do devotions. I just love it. The 10 minutes before I start the devotions, I'm like, do I got time for this? And man, but, but when you get past that flesh and you get blessed by the Spirit, you just get renewed by it. So again, he's talking to these Jews and he's saying, let go of your dead synagogues and hold on to that joy you had when you first got saved. Let go of the traditions and hang on to the new traditions that God wants for you. Do you want to be in the house, verse 6? Do you want to be in God's house or not? You want to be in the family or not? Are you all in or are you lukewarm? You can't be in both. Hold the beginning of our confidence, that first love and that joy. What's interesting in this is that there's a word, uh, parousia, in verse 6 that was confidence. This, this confidence is a different Greek word. I, I really wish the English people would try to figure out words for these kinds of things. Here in, in verse 14, the word confidence is hypostasis. It's to put a thing under something or to have a foundation under something, or the substance of the foundation. So you'd say, my foundation is hypostasis. It is firm. In fact, the beginning of our confidence, steadfast, steadfast actually means firm. So you would say, the beginning of our confidence, steadfast, a, a viable translation of that Greek is, the beginning of our firm foundation. This is the beginning of our firm foundation. What was it? to be partakers of Christ, the body of Christ, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast. We hold our, first firm, our firm foundation steadfast. Hebrews 11.1, 1, this is the substance of things hoped for. It's Jesus. That's our foundation. 
We hold partaking to Christ. Bebeos is the steadfast. With hypostasis, it's a firm foundation. Ephesians 2.19, Therefore you are no stranger, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So that and Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. What's that foundation made of? All the people that have followed the Lord before us. We're building up a house. And our generation has a responsibility just like the last one did and the one before it, going all the way back. Ah, that's awesome. Think about the history of that. We are being held to the same account as Abraham in his generation, Joshua in his generation, Deborah in her generation. We have jobs to do and people to talk to and things to, things to be doing for the kingdom in our generation too that are being written down in books that have yet to be read. Because God keeps a book of life, he's got to keep a whole library of other things. Where will we be in that story? The faithful or the faithless? The ones that were in the right house or the wrong house? And we keep steadfast to the end. We don't start without intention to finish. Verse 15, while it is said, today you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. So again, he's quoting Psalm 95 there. He's quoting it uh, very carefully. Um, So he's done a double quote on Psalm 95, which puts a magnifying glass on that psalm. Right? It's an essential warning that he's pulling out in the midst of all that joy. He uses the word while at the beginning of 15. It's a key word. It's like a door hinge. While is to not only look backwards, therefore, but to look forwards. So while we do this, uh, this is an interesting one to unpack. If we've become partakers of Christ, we hold the confidence of our steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. We do all of this at the same time. We cling to the church at the same time that we let go of our old lives. And it happens together, while. Verse 15, they use the word today again. Again, that emphasis just keeps popping up. We do it today. If you will hear his voice, how do we hear God's voice? Well, it starts by listening to the word of God. That's what we do. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. If you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? For the Son of Man will come with his angels in the glory of his Father and will judge all people according to their deeds. What do you mean? That means our works make our salvation? No. It means that you will be judged according. It means exactly what it says. If you're part of God's family, he's going to look at the work you did. We get a performance review. It doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with how God will receive us when we get to heaven. We don't do the works to save ourselves. We do the works because we love the God that's already saved us. Does that register? Don't harden. In this verse, they connect hardening with rebellion itself. If we believe we grow in faith over time, I call that being an old gem. If we harden ourselves, we are plagued with sin, we're lonely, we're restless, we have troubles at work, we become wormwoods. And those are the two trajectories in life. There's the way of God which leads to life, there's the way of death which leads to destruction. Do you believe God or don't you? He who hears and fails to obey, well, verse 16 says that's all of us. So let's not beat ourselves up too much here. For who having heard rebelled, Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? 
Literally everyone has this problem. Now, with whom was he angry for 40 years? The answer to that is all of them. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? That was all of them. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to, who, but to those who did not obey? The lack of obedience is what caused this to happen. So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Unbelief is rebellion. And when it says unbelief, that's not to whether or not Jesus rose from the cross. That's whether or not God's commands are to be believed and his instructions are to be believed. Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt? Everybody saw God's wonders. Everyone believed in God and everyone rebelled against the clear commands of God. And we're doing it all over again. So what's the solution? Well, we'll get to chapter four for more on that. We get so close, but we don't go in. This is one of the biggest things for me with the Israel, with the wilderness. They got out of Egypt. They followed the Lord. They crossed the Red Sea. But then those who had gone up with them said, we're not able to go up against the people. They're stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, of which they'd spied out, saying, the land through which we go has, have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people who we saw in it are men of great stature. We'll talk about giants tonight with Samuel again. That passage alone has six lies in it. Like really careful if you unpack that thing, which I won't for the sake of time. Six different lies in that. Well, we can't do it. We're not able to do it. There's giants. In it. All of those things are just lame excuses. The same excuses we're making today. No mention of any of their sins. It's this act that they get in trouble on. Everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not is like a foolish man who built their house on the sand talking about houses and firm foundations. If you don't do what Jesus said to do, it's like you're a fool and you're building your house on shifting sand. They don't enter his rest. It's said 11 times in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4. These people don't enter his rest. That doesn't mean he doesn't love Israel and Israel isn't used for his plan. It means they never get rest. Now, I I don't know about you, but I'd like to live my Christian life with some joy and peace in it. I don't want to constantly be battling So the place that I find my joy is in the Lord. If I'm not doing what he told me to do, I'm not going to find joy. I won't find rest. So, But this can happen to believers. In fact, it commonly happens to believers. In fact, it tends to happen to believers. We have the tendency to do this. I think that's the point of these verses. They're all there. And see, we, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. This obedience in verse 18 and the belief of verse 19 then becomes synonymous. They're the same thing. If you believe something, you do it. The evidence was abundant. They had the Red Sea. They had the plagues. Yet they have the lack of the ability to do what God tells them to do, and they don't go into the land. So note that every Jewish reader that hears this, all of them, all of them, all of them, they all would be itching to say one thing. It wasn't all of them that died in the wilderness. There were two that didn't die in the wilderness. Do we know who they are? Joshua Joshua and Caleb. All the Jewish believers. You can't say everybody. You can't say all of them. I think the writer can say what they want to say. But every one of these Jewish listeners would be like, hmm. And the point here is that the way is narrow and very few get in. That's two people out of roughly one million. Two out of a million that actually believed what God said and was willing to go forward. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life and few find it. 
we tend to drift away. We tend to harden our hearts. Unbelief, if not reversed, yes, it becomes fatal. There are seasons where Israel does find peace and rest because they do and obey God. So I just want to point those out. Under Joshua, they found rest. Under Solomon, they found rest. Under Hezekiah, they found rest. Even David subdued the enemies around him. He had a lifetime of war, but as he subdued the enemies around Israel, he found a season of rest. So it's not that Israel never finds rest. It's that those that didn't believe don't find rest. And amongst those were two that did. And a promise remains. If we believe and obey, there is salvation waiting for us at the other end. If we hold on to the rope, we will be saved. God will pull up the rope. And he will never let us go beyond what we can handle. Our muscles will never give out. Our spiritual muscles will hang on till the end if we choose to. That's a great promise. Therefore, Hebrews 4.1, this is where we're going to go next week, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Guess what? All of Israel failed, but God still had a promise of rest for Israel. Isn't that amazing? That other church across town, the whole group of them can fail, but there's still a promise of rest for people in that church. There are, there are people that God will pull out of there. He saved Noah when the whole world had gone astray. He always redeems his people. We can choose to obey and believe God, and that's a huge blessing in our life. Or we can test God for 40 years and die in the wilderness. Go for it. See how that goes for you. Be playing with the commands of God. Some you agree with, some you don't. Maybe this, maybe that. Be aware. You do that for too long, there could be an end to God's being tested by you. And there is judgment that does come at the other end of things, and there will be people that say, Lord, Lord, and he's going to be like, you never listened to me. You did your own thing the whole time. You were never in the family. My family doesn't even know your name. Brothers and sisters, exhort one another daily. There's no expectation of perfection here. I think that's an important part of this too. God only expects us to have baby faith. He really doesn't expect us to be superstars. And I, I feel so much assurance in that, so much confidence in that. That is my confidence. And even in this chapter, today, 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 God doesn't want us looking back at our past sins and he doesn't want us to worry about tomorrow. Today, do this thing. So if you've had a bad week, okay, well, today do this thing. And God doesn't expect us to be perfect. He never has. In fact, Jesus, I think, is, that's what he's saying when he says it's the smallest of all seeds, the mustard seed, but becomes the largest of the garden pants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make their nest in its branches. If we just do today, we're going to wake up in a couple years and realize that there are people nesting in our branches. There are people that need us. And there's people we need. Suddenly the family grows. And I, I can only testify to that, that as imperfect as you all know that I am, you just say, today I'm going to love people. Today I'm going to check in with somebody. Today I'm going to pray for somebody because they asked for it a week ago. Today I'm going to do these things. And that's all God expects of us. Just do today. So God's looking for wheat among the tares. Don't be deceived by that. Fear that you're a wheat and not a tear. Pay attention to it but then turn and do the things he's told you to do. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Amen? Amen. Hang on, hold fast. Gather into a better house. Be with the family of God. Jesus, we love you, and we love the house that you created. Lord, we don't have the same temptation as the synagogues. 
Uh, but Lord, we do have ways of doing things that our families have done for years, that people we know have done. Lord, we see a church that doesn't necessarily exhort one another daily because they don't necessarily know each other. Uh, we see a, a, an American church today that needs people living more like you. So Lord, may we never run from that. May we faithfully wake up each day and, and do what you've asked us to do. We tend to ourselves, but we do it as a body. Lord, help us to exhort one another, to love one another and comfort one another, to lift one another up, to rebuke and, re and beseech one another when needed, but to, Lord, to come close, to together gather. And, Lord, we do that in your name. We do it because you say when we do that, you'll be there with us, that your spirit will be among us. So, Lord, we're gathered today studying your word, getting convicted by it. Lord, help us to be convicted and change accordingly. Help us to be convicted and be more like you. Help us not to harden our hearts, make excuses, blame the teacher, all those things, Lord. Help us to work this out and to be more like you. And Lord, we thank you for the writer writers of Hebrews. Can't wait to find out who they are in heaven. Um, and Lord, we know that they wrote this uh, because they wanted to, to clearly speak to the church and to warn the church of the the things that we have to be wary of as we gather and as we do your work. In Jesus' name, bless us and bless us food to our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.